This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to tell stories about everything here on this show. And send us your stories, and we'll produce them. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. We love hearing from you, and some of our very best stories have come from you. And we love to tell stories, as you know, about dreamers and doers, people that go up against the grain and achieve the seemingly impossible. Today, we hear a story from a woman who took the road less traveled, an American dreamer, and it has to do not with her career, but with the hopes she had for a family. Sarah Moore brings us her story. I did everything kind of slowly because maybe I was like 33 and I just didn't feel like I was in any rush. And I thought, well, the more I slow roll this, the more the more time I'll have to save money or the more time I'll have to travel and do the things that I want to do um, before this big life change. I, I knew this was something I wanted to do, but I had been putting it off for any number of reasons that anyone puts off big life decisions. So did I have enough money saved? Was my house big enough? It's not, by the way. Um, did I have a supportive workplace? What was my family going to think? Can I do this as a single parent? Is that even a thing that I'm going to be able to survive? Um, and so I just kind of had all these questions and you know, I kind of came to this realization that these are questions that people that have babies the traditional way think too, but they have their babies and it all works out and it's, and it's fine. This is the voice of Stacy Chamberlain, and she's talking about what it's like to go through the adoption process on her own. You know, I'm a, I'm a single adoptive mom, um, so it's just me. And um, I think I always knew that I wanted to, once I knew I wanted to have children, I would say kind of late in my teens when you start thinking that adulthood is kind of around the corner. Um, I, I thought that I probably did want to have adoption be part of my family. There are quite a few people that I knew um, that had adopted children. I think most of them were internationally at the time. Um, but I just always thought that that was part of how I wanted my family one day in the future to look. Um, but I didn't have any specific plans. And then um, through my 20s and then, you know, kind of early 30s, I I started thinking to myself, like, what am I waiting for? I you know, was not married and um, I knew I wanted to have children. And then there was this also this kind of nagging thing in the back of my head where I did always know that I wanted adoption to be part of my world. And so I think, you know, a couple years ago, um, I had a couple family friends in the DC area that had recently adopted. They had all used this one agency close to here. And I, I thought to myself, like, why don't I just go to an information session? It's just an information session, and I'm just going to get some pamphlets and hear what they have to talk about. Attending that first information session? Harmless. A couple of months after that, she filled out the intake form and submitted it to the agency. Just a form that was like, 
what am I about? Why am I interested in adoption? And did they want to take me on as a client? And so um, I thought that form <laughs> was long and little did I know how many forms I was going to end up doing in the next couple years. Then honestly, I sat on that for like six, six months, um, just thinking about it, letting it kind of go to the back of my head. And eventually, um, I just woke up one morning and I was like, what are you waiting for? What is your problem? Um, and so I called the agency and I said, I'm ready to start. And then we started the process of home study, which is a whole other can of worms. If you're someone like me that is really bad at things like record keeping and administrative work, um, it's hard. It took me, I think, five months to get my paper, just my paperwork for my home study done. So, um, you know, a home study is essentially the process that an agency uses to get to know you and to petition the state with their, um, with their kind of recommendation that you would be a good adoptive parent. The paperwork that you give them is everything you could ever imagine. So it's um, every kind of insurance and proof of your insurance, medical, car insurance, your driving record, your homeowner's insurance, what your mortgage is. Um, you do multiple FBI background checks. You do multiple state background checks and I think I got fingerprinted five different times in those months. And then the end of a home study is the meetings you do with your social worker. So that whole process, the home study process, which is what when I consider I really, when I would say I started until I got my home study approval was six full months. The next big hurdle would Stacy be matched with a family? This is a process that could take years. I was still thinking that as a single woman, um, you know, it was gonna take me a lot longer to have a match and be matched with a birth mother and a child than it would a married couple. And so I was prepared for that mentally. Honestly, some self-conscious stuff that I went through when I first started being shown to birth parents, I mean, I thought to myself, I would never choose a single person. Like, I would choose two parents. Who would ever choose me? And that's not questions about who I am as a person, but that I am only one person. And when we return, we'll hear more on Stacy and the decisions she ended up making. Decisions that would change her life in every imaginable way. Stacy's story, the story of so many Americans who have adopted or are thinking of adopting, here on Our American Stories. return to Our American Stories, an all-month-long, it's National Adoption Month, started in the year 2000 by a coalition 
of adoption groups across this country. And here at Our American Stories, we celebrate adoption stories of all shapes and sizes. And now we return to Sarah Moore and her story of Stacy Chamberlain. Even early on in the adoption process, Stacy encountered some of the assumptions people have about the adoption journey. You know, a lot of birth parents are coming, a lot of birth mothers specifically, are coming from home situations where one of two things is true. Either there was not a father figure, and so that is not a bias that they have, which I have, because I grew up with two parents. Or the second thing is true, which is there was a father figure or a male figure in their life who was not a positive influence or was not good to them on any number of levels. So how does the matching process actually work? They will give those uh, birth parents a couple profile books and let them look through them, decide if they want to interview people, or if they don't and they need more books or kind of whatever the next step is. So anyway, so I did my book um, and I started to be shown in September of 2015. And I was like, I was in it, right? I was thinking, okay, if in 18 months there had been no bites for me, we were going to reevaluate my profile book. Like that was kind of the timeline um, that I had. And that's after I had been through the six month home study. And, you know, so it had been going on a while, but September 2015, we kind of decided like, hey, if we get 18 months, (laughs) there's been no bites, then we will see if there's something we can improve about the profile book or whatever. And so I was shown a couple times um, that fall and into the Christmas season and the new year. I was matched with my son's birth mom um, the beginning of that February, so it had really only been about four and a half months. And so, you know, a lot of families, and you're told this from the beginning, but a lot of families go through what they call a failed match, which is you're matched with birth parents, and for whatever reason, they decide to parent the child instead of place them. Most people have a failed match and it's terrible and it's painful and it's awful but in my kind of data mind I thought to myself well statistically let's get this failed match over with (laughs) because statistically this this is impossible that I would actually get a baby four months after starting to be shown Um, and so let's just get this let's get my failed match on you know over with and onto my real baby You know, I had known leading up to that day that he was going to be a C-section and that her C-section was at at 2 o'clock on a Tuesday. And so I had been texting with my social worker, like, his birth mom got to the hospital and she's there and she's feeling good and healthy and, you know, they're going to start prepping her to go in for the C-section and all this. And then it got to 2 o'clock. And I was sitting where I'm sitting right now, which is at my desk at work, because I was like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna not be at work and let my mind go crazy all day. 
it got to 2 and 2.15 and 2.30 and 2.45 and I know how long C-sections take. So I started freaking out. And so finally at 2.50, I texted my social worker and said, what is going on? Has she changed her mind? Just freaking out. And she was like, Stacey, it's only 1.50 because I did not think about the time change. (laughs) So she had not even gone in for c-section yet because they were in central time and here i was freaking out that something bad had happened my son's birth mom uh had him and and placed him with me um he was born on february 23rd uh, which was a tuesday and she reconfirmed that she did want to place and so i got on the next plane which was the next morning um i think it was a 6 30 a.m plane um out of dc to houston and uh in overnight planning like i you know that night i had to get a hotel and um get a flight and you know pack up and do all these things um the one thing i forgot was to get a rental car so when i landed in houston i had to get a rental car um I drove about an hour outside the city where he was born and went directly to the hospital, met my social worker there for the first time in person because everything had been over the phone and met her there and um, you know, they took me to the nursery and I, I met the little guy. I think I was in complete shock. I was in shock for a full couple days because I just had approached it as this is my failed match. Um, And I'm sure I did that partially to protect myself um, from the disappointment that I was so sure I was going to have. But, you know, two days after he was born, the normal kind of newborn time in a hospital, we signed all our paperwork and I took him directly from (laughs) the hospital to a Target uh, because I needed to buy the guy some food. Um, And then we went to a hotel where we spent the next couple days. And that is kind of, yeah, that's kind of the soup to nuts, very, very fast uh, process. Just like with any family, there's no amount of prep work that can ever equip you for what it's like to bring new life into your home. I had really not even told my family yet because I was going to tell them when I thought there was probably going to be six months or a year left. And so the summer I thought I was gonna kind of tell them, hey, I'm in this process, I had a five month old. That's when I was gonna tell them (laughs) that at some point in the future I was getting a baby, Um, but I had a five month old. And I also had not told but one or two people at my work. And so when I was in Texas, um, when he was two days old that first night in a hotel across from the hospital, I had to open up my laptop and email the CEO and the chairman and other people at my company saying, hey, I'll be back in three months after maternity leave. By the way, I also have a baby. So, you know, it was this crazy whirlwind, but um, but it was great and I surprised a lot of people. I had to tell my, even my, my employees, I think I had four or five at the time from Texas, I had to email them and say, this is what's happened. This is what I'm doing. I'll be back in May. <laughs> so, so that was just kind of the way I handled it. You know, people joke now that because I had held it so close and there were so few people in what they call your adoption circle, um, 
to so few people that had known at that point, because um, I just thought I had so much time to, to roll that out, that people still joke that when I start a conversation and I said, hey, I have something to tell you, they're like, is there a baby? And I said, no, there's not another baby. That's not what I'm doing right now. So that's kind of our whole story. And what a story so far, and there's more to come. But for anyone who's ever gone through this adoptive process, creating that kind of a strategy for herself to buttress disappointment and prepare for the, well, the bad news. And suddenly to have a baby like that, get a call, and that's it. You've got a kid. And again, this is not how most couples do it because, you know, well, nine months ahead of time, and you got real time to prepare emotionally for this thing called child raising. And by the way, I have a dear friend who loves to talk to young people about, you know, this idea, am I ready? Am I ready? And I'm not ready. I am ready. Am I not ready? And the, the puzzling and worrying that goes on about being ready to have a child. And he just says something simple to them. No one is ever ready. And you're never ready to take care of another life. And so what a bold thing that Stacy Chamberlain decides to do here. She's now in Houston, she's got her new child, and she said goodbye to a job for three months, and they heard nothing about it, and everybody's shocked, and probably Stacy most of all. And when we come back, well, what's next for Stacy? What happens next? This new mom with this new child, and when we come back, more of this great adoption story. And by the way, if you have adoption stories, and I know you do, don't be shy about it. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and share your story with us. And I don't care how conventional it is because there's no real conventional way to have a kid anyway. And I don't know anyone who did it conventionally. Um, I don't even know what it means. Send your stories, your adoption stories to OurAmericanNetwork.org. When we come back, Stacey Chamberlain's story, her motherhood story, her new motherhood story here on Our American Stories. To Stacy Chamberlain's story, she is now a mom, raising a child on her own, and of course that has its highs and its lows. As prepared as she was, Stacy was pleasantly surprised at how natural it was. Let's return to the story. So Stacy adopted her first child at age 35. What was it like to grow a family this way? In, in the beginning, when they sleep all the time, that's when I kind of wrapped up everything I was doing. But then after that, I mean, I was just so, if you think about it, like if you think about my situation or almost any adoption, I mean, I didn't have a baby shower, right? I didn't have, I had put together kind of a list, you could call it a registry, but you know, after I brought my son home when he was two weeks old, because we had to stay in Texas for a little while, 
Um, then I started getting my baby stuff and putting together the baby swings and the cribs and the and so there was so much to do and only two adult hands in the house to take care of him knowing that that time was limited and having so much to do um, made it you know more possible it's been a couple of years now since Stacy adopted Whit. what's he like not only is he really smart he's also really cute and I feel so much freedom to say those two things because he does not have my genes. And so I feel like my bragging is completely justified <laughs> because I am not, because I am not, you know, sort of trying to give myself an offhanded comment. <laughs> so Wit is uh, two years and nine months. Um, he is the tallest kid in his preschool class, um, even though he's second youngest. So he's just this gigantor tall toddler. Um, every time we go to the pediatrician, they do the thing where they, you know, they measure and then they pull out their percentage chart to tell you kind of what the percentile is. And every time his pediatrician, she goes, okay, let's see where it is. And then she moves her finger and she says, we'll call that a hundred. Um, on, on height, so he's a skinny little guy. Honestly, the first nine to 12 months, um, we had a great routine and he went to um, a woman's house until recently as his daycare. He was always one of two or three or four kids and um, she's like a second mom to him and it was a really great find as far as childcare. And, you know, once he got to be 12 months old, he kind of started his toddler, his toddler stuff early you know, had a lot of opinions um, about what he wanted to play with or not and eat or not and where or not or where he wanted to go or didn't want to go. And that has kind of been him ever since, you know, I don't have any family that lives here at all, but I do have great friends who are like family that have taken him in when, you know, his uh, nanny was sick and I needed to go to work and they've taken him for the day or when we've needed to get to the airport or um, just those normal like my kid is making this sound or he has this rash on him or he put this thing in his nose or mouth or whatever. We've had a great system around us that has become our family since you know, our family doesn't live around here. The only negative um, things that I've heard about doing it as a single parent have been in the form of questions that I think people think they're tricking me into. <laughs> so, you know, like, oh, did you think about how, um, have you thought about how he doesn't have a dad? Well, yeah, I've actually thought through that. <laughs> Shockingly, <laughs> that's a thing I thought through. You know, people, whether they're people close to us or they're strangers, feel, seem to feel a lot of freedom to try to get into the nitty gritty details of what his ethnic heritage is. There have been comments made and mostly questions that are really loaded that have been hard to hear and hard to handle, but it's really been part of my own growth. You know, I got this great advice um, from a mom friend. She has a son that is Korean and she is kind of very fair skin and red hair. And, you know, when he was a baby, people would ask her, um, oh, is he adopted? Right. And 
you know, she had some of these same feelings that I have or other parents, uh, other adoptive parents have where, you know, occasionally she'd be snarky and say, why do you ask? You know, (laughs) Um, because then you're making the person say, oh, well, he looks different from you, right? Like sort of asking the person to think through what they're doing, (laughs) what they're actually saying. But she made this great point that, you know, by and large, when people when strangers, not, you know, kind of people, you know, prying into these details, but when strangers approach you, um, about these things, it is because they too are related to what is called the adoption triangle. And the adoption triangle is made up of the adoptee. So the child, the adoptive parent or parents, and then the third point is the birth mother or the birth family. And so, by and large, when people ask you, it is because what comes next is them saying, oh, I'm adopted, or we adopted my brother when I was 10 years old, or um, we're in the process of adopting, or, you know, it's really something that is a way to connect, and they're looking for a way to emotionally connect and have recognized a family that might look like theirs looks or is going to look. Um, There are jerks out there, of course, and we've had some of those as well. Um, But by and large, you know, people are truly wondering um, if you are similar to them or you have some similarities um, of something they've been through or are going to go through. And um, so remembering that as an adoptive parent, I, I sort of represent uh, adoption to the outside world. Um, I, you know, try to keep that in mind, even if I get a couple of crazy questions here and there. What is it that motivates Stacy day in and day out? I, I have always said um, orphan doesn't have to be a word that does not, and orphans don't have to be a thing, right? Bible commands us that we are to care for orphans and widows. And you can take those two different um, groups of people and apply them um, to, you know, some differences. If everyone in a church in America took one kid, or if every church took one kid, we would not have a foster system. But there is nothing that I have ever done that has made me understand more of how, um, how God views his people than to become an adoptive parent. To take a child literally born of somebody else. I mean, this woman, you know, looked at a book about me and trusted me to raise her child. And, and then raise him to be the best, you know, person that he can be. And nothing is a better picture of the gospel than that. I think a lot of people are afraid of these horror stories they hear, right? They're afraid of birth parents and birth moms. They're afraid of this one story that they heard from an aunt about their hairstylist mechanic who had a birth mom or dad or grandma come back and take their child away. If we are looking at birth parents in a fearful way or in any other way than that these are warriors that have allowed their body to house another human to then give it to another parent, then we need to adjust our viewpoint. My favorite thing to say about birth mothers is 
when people ask questions about them, like, was she this? Was she that? Was she young? Was she on drugs? Did she have other kids? Did she, was she married? Was she not? All these things that people ask. The thing I always say is there are a lot of things that are important about Wit's birth mom. The only thing that matters about her to anyone other than me and Wit, the only thing that matters about her is that she let my son live. And great job on that story, Sarah. And thanks to Stacy Chamberlain and thanks to all the adoptive parents out there and anyone thinking about adopting. Get to it. Just get to it. Don't worry about it. Just do it. And we're celebrating adoption stories all month long here on Our American Stories because it's National Adoption Month. The story, Stacy Chamberlain's story, her little and growing boy story, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we've all heard of gunslingers Wild Bill Hickok, Doc Holliday, and Billy the Kid. These three quick-draw legends got nothing on the guy we're about to meet. Here's Greg Hengler with a story. We all know the classic cowboy film story where the bad guy shows up in town and picks a fight with the good guy. Well, you wouldn't want to pick a gunfight with the good guy you're about to meet. After all, if gunslinger Bob Munden would have existed in the Wild West, he would have simply been called Death. Bob Munden is one of the great characters in all the shooting sports. If you don't believe me, just ask him. I'm not perfect. Like I tell people all the time in jest, I'm not perfect. I'm just the closest thing you're going to get to it. And that's what I tell them, you know, and all in jest, of course, and I have fun with it. All jokes aside, Bob is the most decorated, fast-draw competitor of all time, a feat that earned him the title, the fastest gun who ever lived. It takes a human three-tenths of a second to blink. Bob can draw, cock, fire from his hip, it's called instinctive shooting, and reholster faster than an eye can blink. I first realized I, was, I had this ability when I first started shooting competition on electronic timers. The speed of my draw, to, to the mechanics of drawing and firing the gun, is uh, a one and three quarters, one hundredths of one second, or less than one half of one half of one tenth of one second, or just fast, whatever's easy for you to say. Here's Bob being interviewed at one of his fast draw competitions in 1986. You are known as one of the fastest gunslingers in the world. Yeah, well, as I, I'm listed in the Guinness Book of World Records as the fastest man with a gun who ever lived. Oh. You know, there are 18 world records you can hold in this sport. I hold all 18 and have since 1960. Okay, now how do, how do you compare to some of the, you know, the old Wild West heroes that we hear about and see on movies and stuff like that? And, uh, you know, how... Uh, how they used to have like duels and draw against each other and well as i said i mean there's not one incident recorded in history where two men faced off and drew guns at one another the movies created fast it never happened in real life really mm -hmm. you mean no no two guys went out there and decided to do that ever no oh i see shot. it sounds a fabrication of the movies how, huh? how did how did bill hickok die i think it was shot in the back that's the way they all died i've taken what they what the movies have created and i've built a show around it 
And I have pushed it. We've made a science of it. Fast draw is the fastest thing a human being does. Nobody does anything faster than what I do with guns. Can you give it a comparison to something that would come close but is not as fast? Speed of light, which is far beyond it. Right. There is nothing next to it. Now you say, no way you talk about it. I said, well, I mean, and then I have to show you. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, the fastest gun in the world right here. In 2010, the 68-year-old Munden was tested by sports physiologist David Sandler, who is an expert in human movement and has studied the world's fastest people. Here's David. Yeah, basically we have a couple different kinds of accelerometers that we're going to place on Bob's hand. And so as Bob goes through the range of motion, we're going to pick up the actual acceleration of his hand and be able to determine velocity from that. We have the ability to measure in thousands of a second, so uh, hopefully we can, we can catch what's right. happening. You know, the human eye can't keep up with anything no, like no. that. No way. Ready? And three, two, one, go. Wow. Wow. That was incredible. So what's happening is your hand, when you do that pop, the max acceleration peak registers up here. You reach nearly 10G of acceleration with your hand. Okay, what that means uh, in normal language is uh, it's incredibly fast. G stands for the force of gravity on Earth. Fighter pilots are tested to withstand a maximum of 9Gs. But Bob's muscles, for a fraction of a second, are generating 10 Gs of force. But more incredibly, the results show that Bob can draw cock fire and reholster his gun faster than the reaction time in the average human brain. Human, human reaction is around two-tenths of a second. The whole, the actual action lasted less than a tenth of a second. What's that comparable to? Well, I've actually measured rattlesnakes before, and uh, he is faster than a rattlesnake. Looks like around six hundredths of a second to make the actual uh, movement itself, which is remarkable. I mean, unbelievable speed. But Bob wants to prove he's not only superhuman with his speed, but also with his accuracy. He sets up two targets six feet apart and attempts to hit both faster than the blink of an eye. Listen closely. He does it so quickly that you will not be able to hear two distinctive shots. I'll, yeah, I'm going to bring the gun up, fire two shots, one for each target as fast as I can. Wow. And the gun must be cocked and fired for each shot. Yeah, so you've got to cock it, bang, cock it, aim yep, again, right. cock it, and bang. Yeah. That was absolutely incredible. That was amazing. That was phenomenal. Two shots. I only heard one. Did you hear another one? I only heard one shot. That is amazing. That is unbelievable. And even on this graph, the shots even look kind of like one. I've never seen anything like this. Two shots in under a tenth of a second. A remarkable feat of dexterity and hand-eye control. Uh, just incredible. He, he is superhuman. I mean, bottom line is uh, he exceeds what every other human on this planet can do. So... You know, by definition, that would make him superhuman. But Bob doesn't work as a solo act. Wherever he is, so is his wife, Becky, also a world champion shooter. The two are married in 1964 after a three-month courtship. My life has revolved around my wife, my wife, Becky. I don't do anything without her, and I can't 
I, I don't even want to do anything without her. After winning every fast draw competition multiple times, Bob sought out new challenges. So Bob and Becky began performing together beginning in 1968, emphasizing the importance of gun safety. Here's Becky remembering the early days when they first started to tour with their fast draw trick shot show. Started traveling, uh, performing in 1969. So it's been quite a few years. And we uh, started out in a uh, station wagon. And we had our two daughters with us, four years old and two years old. And uh, we put them in the back with their toys. And we had all of our equipment in the middle seat, you know. And then uh, we were in the front. And we did school assembly programs. Becky may be the only person who can keep Bob in check. I, I guess that's why I'm around too. <laughs> uh, humble him a little bit once in a while so he's, you know, his, uh, his hat doesn't get too tight. The Mundans have performed in convention centers, malls, and car dealerships. We've done shows at um, amusement parks in uh, New Jersey and New York, and they had no idea that you could shoot a gun and not kill somebody. I mean, really, it's astounding, but they're out there. So uh, we're, we're able to talk to people and, and maybe uh, soften the image of the, of the handgun. We're proud that uh, we can represent the shooting sports in our own way and maybe introduce them to people that don't even know they're out there. After years of traveling, the Mundans spend less time on the road and more time in their Butte, Montana home. This open land is the perfect place for the California natives to do what they do. Well, first of all, we got the freedom to do what we do. There's nobody saying, well, you can't do this, can't do that. California, if it's not illegal, it costs you, as an example. Whether it's trick shooting or gunslinging, Bob learned early on he would need the right equipment to keep up with his talents. Bob would get this equipment by building it himself, custom-made Colt 45 single-action revolvers. This skill would become Bob's second career. So through the process of trial and error, changing the gun around, the lock system and so on, then I learned how to build guns for my own purpose first. And then other people started to ask me to do their guns because my guns were so efficient. Those other people include fellow shooters and celebrities like Kurt Russell, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and Randy Travis. Piece by piece, part by part, Bob files, grinds, and trims nearly every piece of the Colt until he can dry fire the gun without any friction or flaws in the action. But when they come out of the factory, remember the factories, their job is just to get them where they work safely and uh, right out of the factory. But that doesn't mean they work right. It doesn't mean they're, they're, just, they're just guns that are, that are production guns. When I pick up a gun, I pick it up and I think, well, you've got some problems here. I kind of feel like a doctor, a surgeon. When I pick up a gun, I say, well, okay, baby, you've got problems, but I'm going to fix you. I'm going to make you perfect. Until his death from a heart attack on December 10th, 2012, 70-year-old Bob Munden was in his shop on a regular basis doing action and trigger work on single actions, Smith & Wesson double actions, and Bond Derringers. A public celebration at Butte Gun Club for Bob Munden took place on Saturday, June 12, 2013. A six-gun salute began at high noon, in keeping with the tradition in Western movies. Under a beautiful sky, Bob's wife of almost 50 years started things off by stepping up to the firing line and fanning off five rounds. 
family members, and special guests use single-action revolvers to complete the 70-shot salute, one for every year of Bob's life. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job on that, Greg. The fastest gun who ever lived. Bob Munden's story here on Our American Stories. And to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our free newsletter. You'll get the best five stories each week. Again, that's ouramericannetwork.org. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and that's Will Smith you're listening to rapping the song Switch. And, well, you heard the last story. If you didn't go to ouramericannetwork.org, you heard the last story about Will Smith talking about how he became the star of the 1990s hit TV show, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. A little bit of luck, a little bit of grit, and, well, Quincy Jones pushing him right into it and doing the sale for him. You learn a lot about Quincy in that particular story. Quincy was more than a musician, obviously. A lot more than a musician, a heck of a salesman in the end. Now we're about to listen to Smith tell a more sober story from his youth as he made the switch in his freshman year from an almost all-white Catholic school into an all-black public school. Here's Will Smith. Uh, so I, I went to uh, Catholic school uh, up to eighth grade with uh, all white kids and probably two or three black kids, but you know predominantly white school. And then I went to my neighborhood high school in ninth grade that was 99% black kids. Um, so the first day that I, I walk in to ninth grade. I walked into the lunchroom and you know, it was like 500 kids. And for, to this day, I don't know why I did this. I'm sure it was because I was, I was nervous. And you, you know, I got the, I have a thing with fear. I don't like being scared. So I'm sure I, was, I walked in, uh, I looked around and I said, excuse me, can I have your attention? Can I have your attention please? He's here. He's here right now. Thank you. Thank you. People was kind of looking. And there was this one dude, and he was sitting there. And he looked up to me. He said, man, don't nobody give a that you here. Right? And I said, hey, just give me 10 minutes. Your girl going to care. Right? And he was like, all right. And you got to watch that nod. That nod is not a good nod. He was like. And I was like, okay. So I went, so I'm walking up the steps. We're out of the lunchroom and I forgot about it. So we're going and I'm walking up the steps and he had taken one of those combination locks and he put the lock in the palm of his hand and put, his, put the, uh, the loop around his knuckle and he was holding the lock in his hand. And 
as I was walking up the steps, he cracked me in the side of my head with the lock. And I went down, I was out, I don't remember nothing. I still got the lump on my head. You can't see it because I got my hair, but I still, like, there's still a lump. So I remember I fell down, I hit my mouth on the steps, all of that stuff, you know. So I went up, so I'm in the principal's office, all of that, the police come, and I got the ice on my lips, and I'm, I'm sitting in the principal's office. And my father comes in, he sees me, and, and you know, I'm telling the story now, the police are there, and I remember I saw this kid, they put him in handcuffs and took him out of the school. And I'm looking, sitting in the principal's office and I'm watching the police take him out and put him in the back of a police car. And I just couldn't believe it had escalated to a kid being removed from, from school. And I was laying in my bed that night and I was just feeling like And I had the recognition that I had caused this kid to throw his life away, right? And he was kicked out of school and I never knew what, what happened to him, but I, I, I have a sense that it, it, it didn't go well beyond there. And I felt a deep sense of regret and a deep sense that I had caused an emotion in a person that made them do that. And that, that feeling of regret turned into a sort of a fear of how much power I had. And I was like, everything I say and do has that kind of effect on other human beings. And in that moment, I decided that I would never walk into a room and do anything other than inspire and uplift and enlighten people and help people to be the greater versions of themselves. And I would never do anything that would cause people to, to rile up the darkest, dirtiest, parts of people. I only wanted to enliven and enlighten and inspire. And I remember laying in my bed that night and I made that promise to myself and I made that promise to God. And it's something that has completely shaped how I approach people, how I approach moments, how I walk into rooms, how I deal with every human being on this earth. To him and to his family, I want to send uh, my deepest apologies and I hope my, my words and my sincerity uh, reach you and I, I hope your life uh, has gone well for you. And that about tells you everything you need to know about Will Smith as a young man, as a grown man. Feelings of regret about his words. By the way, we heard this from Pat Williams over and over during our leadership summit. And Pat, one of the great writers on leadership in this country, and we heard about it from Bear Bryant. We heard about it from the athletes. So many people are words. They're so powerful, and they can determine outcomes. And for a young man to understand this at the ripe old age of perhaps 14 and to understand that he caused this, most of us would have just blamed the kid who hit us over the head. And I, most adults would blame the kid who hit us over the head with a lock for a joke. But my goodness, it's animated everything about Will Smith's life. Look at his work. 
Look at where he stands. Look at how white America, black America, and everybody in between in the world views Will Smith. What he puts out is what he gets back, folks. This is Lee Habib. And Sly Stallone's story, Denzel Washington's, Gene Wilder's, Al Pacino's. We have so many of these on OurAmericanNetwork.org. And it's life lessons from these folks, too. They're not like the other kids, a lot of these men and women that we hear from. Will Smith's story, here on Our American Stories. And this is Our American Stories, and it's time for the McClellan Files, where we go deep inside the life of Bob McClellan, someone that you don't know, but whose life and whose voice, whose writing, you're sure to be captivated by. I had returned from my tour of duty overseas, carrying my orders to take 20 days leave and report back to Camp Pendleton for the remaining seven months of my enlistment. I decided to leave a couple days earlier, and as I was packing up to go, my mother came to me and said, you know, your sister has been transferred from Porter State Hospital to Agnew State Hospital in San Jose, and that she thought it would be a good idea if I went by to visit my sister. Well, I started arguing with her right away. I mean, I had no interest in spending any of the remaining leave I had um, visiting anybody, and let alone my sister, who had left home where my parents had deposited her at Porterville State Hospital 15 years earlier because raising a a young girl with Down syndrome plus three boys and a husband overseas in the Marines um, was a very difficult task. And so other than for a day or two, I had not seen my sister in 15 years and I didn't know what I would do there. I didn't see any reason to go. But my mother kept insisting by telling me things like, well, you know, you're going to have to take care of her someday. And I thought, well, why am I taking care of her someday? I mean, you're her parents. I'm just her brother. And so um, we had this discussion and I finally, in the end, I said, okay. And so I got my car and I drove down to Agnew. And I'd never been there, and when I pulled up front, the first thing I noticed was this building was surrounded by a cyclone fence. And I could see the patients uh, kind of wandering around or sitting around, not doing much, just walking around. There's not much for them to do there. And um, I got out of the car, and I opened the gate, and I went in. And when I, as soon as I got in there, they, some of these people started walking towards me. Uh, talking to me as if they knew who I was or they thought I was someone they knew. And I had this, I wanted no part of this at all. I just really had never been in a place like this and many of them were disabled by a variety of disabilities. And so I just got up the steps real quick and I entered in through these double doors into the entranceway. And yet, as outside, people were coming to me, recognizing me, pointing at me, they wanted to talk to me. 
And so I'm trying to work my way through a small gathering of uh, people around me as they're reaching out to touch me and to talk to me. And I didn't know what to do. I just kept trying to get my way to the nurse's desk. But there was one young man who was before me, and it was clear to me that he had something on his mind that he wanted to tell me. But the distance between the thought and the ability to speak was way too too wide. He couldn't get over it. And so as he was sitting there trying to form words or syllables on his lips, his facial muscles contorted and his head would jerk. And, and it was a painful expression on his face. And finally, I got to the nurse's station and the nurse said, can I help you? And I said, yes, I'd like to see Tony McClellan. And they said, then who are you? I said, I'm her older brother and I've just got a few minutes stopping in to visit and say hello. So they said, well, why don't you sign the guest register and I'll go down and get her in the ward. So I watched her walk down this long hallway, the main hallway, and the end of the hallway was completely darkened. And so she saw her open this door and she disappeared into what looked like a ward from where I was standing. So I took the guest register and I opened it up to, uh, down to Tony's name. And um, I saw something extraordinary. And that was is that no one had been to visit my sister in five years. The last visitor she had had was my mother. What surprised me even more was the date at which Tony went to Porterville occurred while we lived in the area. And though we spent many summers coming through here on our way to Southern California on school vacation, we never had any idea that she was now living there and my parents never made any or showed any interest in stopping and seeing her. And I felt, I felt this sense of shame. I mean, I didn't know Tony. I was, I was a year older. Um, we lived at home together for five years until my mother just couldn't handle the absence um, of, of help and the strain of having a daughter with Down syndrome and three boys. All of a sudden, I heard my name called, and I turned around, and there was the nurse. And she was standing there holding the hand of this small, young adult girl who was holding this teddy bear. And I walked over, and as I stood in front of her, I remembered her. I remember mostly from the picture, the oval picture of her on my mother's dresser. She had two. She had one of Tony on the front lawn down at Camp Pendleton. And one of the two of us, and Tony was in like a Sunday dress. And I was wearing the traditional blue shorts, navy blue shorts with the blue suspenders, a white short sleeve shirt and a bow tie. And the two of us were standing next to each other on the lawn. And that comprised my entire memory of my sister. She was short, hair was flaky with dandruff. The dress was colorless and way too big for her. Her hair was cut in places like this that's not styled. Her hair was just cut. And she was standing with this kind of bewildered look on her face when the nurse bent over at the waist and turning to Tony, she said, Tony, this is your brother. And immediately she stepped forward and threw herself into my legs, hugging me and crying. My brother, my brother, my brother. And I'm standing in the middle of this lobby, 
looking down on the top of her head. She was so small and I'm looking down on the top of her head and people are kind of gathering around. There's a commotion going on. There's something happening here. What is this? And so pretty soon I had, I had spectators and the nurse and I and Tony crying and I didn't know what to do. I you know I was just a 20 year old corporal. I didn't have any idea what I was supposed to do. So I bent down and I got down on one knee and I freed her arm from around my leg and I looked at her and she had big eyes, and wet with tears and this teddy bear and, and the face was clearly a Down syndrome child. And I said, Tony, Tony, settle down here. I'm, stop this, Tony. Tony, take it easy. Just relax here. Just take it easy, okay? Just stop crying. Stop crying. And so she tried to kind of hold it back. And then I said to the nurse, can we get out of here? Get, can we get, just get out of this place for now? And she said, certainly. So I said to Tony, I said, Tony, so you and I go get something to eat. You want something to eat? And she goes, oh, hamburger, hamburger. I want a hamburger and a Diet Coke. And I said, okay. So we left, got in a car, and I drove to this restaurant. Ordered, ordered just what she wanted. She knew what she wanted. She wanted a Coke, no ice, black coffee, uh, french fries, and a hamburger. And she wouldn't give the menu back to the waitress because she wanted everything that had a photograph of it. And then she was pointing at trays going by with food on and she was pointing she wanted to eat that. And she just seemed to have this kind of ravenous appetite in her eyes, but she certainly wasn't skinny. I mean, she wasn't malnourished or anything. So the nurse brings the food, uh, the waitress brings the food, and I'm sitting there trying to think of something to say. I, mean, I really didn't know what to say. And she just was really happy just eating the food. She was eating like a crab. She had alternate hands going in and out with, with hands, feeding herself. And finally, in the middle of her eating, she looked up at me and with this alert look in her eyes and said, Bathroom! Bathroom! I said, Bathroom? Bathroom? You need to use the bathroom? And she nods her head up and down, which was most of the communication she had was either facial expressions or nodding her head. And now she's nodding her head. She has to go to the bathroom. And the first thing that went through my mind is, oh my God, what am I going to do? How am I going to do this? And when we continue more of the McClellan files, and again, we told you that you may not know him, but his storytelling, his voice, my goodness. Well, You'll hear more of this story, what happens next. Bob McClellan finally reunites with his sister. The McClellan Files, here on Our American Stories. And send your stories to us at ouramericannetwork.org. We put every kind of story up on the air, and our favorites are yours. You are the hour in Our American Stories. Bob McClellan's story continues after these messages.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the McClellan Files. You're listening to Bob McClellan, and he's in a restaurant with his sister, a sister he hadn't seen in a very long time, a sister who happens to have Down syndrome. Let's continue where we last left off. So I quickly got up and I said, okay, well, let's go. Before she got up, though, she took her napkin and folded it neatly. She moved her plate and her drink into the center of the table, cleaned out her little area there, and climbed out of the booth and reached up, took my hand, and we walked to the back of the restaurant. So we get to the back of the restaurant, and I've got two doors there, obviously, and I point to the door that said, women. And I'm pointing to it, and I said, now this is women. This is where you go. You go in here. You understand? Women. You're a woman. You go in here. Now, if you get any problems in there, there are other women in there. Ask them to give you a hand if you need any help. I'll wait for you out here. So she just nodded her head, seemed to understand what I was talking about, and disappeared into the ladies' room. So I stood there for a while and waited anxiously. And finally she came out and everything seemed fine. And we returned to the table and continued with our meal. I think the thing that stood out the most to me were the reactions of the people in the restaurant. I mean, clearly she wasn't welcome. She made other people feel uncomfortable. There was a couple walking through the restaurant and her kids were staring at, at Tony and the mother's admonishing them saying, you know, don't stare. It's not polite to stare. Just be glad, you know, that you have all of your fingers in pose and, you know, and just don't pay any attention to her. And it made me very angry, um, much to my surprise, but it brought back a memory one time when Tony was with us for a day. And, um, I was just a small boy. And my mother comes running into the room and my sister had gotten out and says to me, your sister's being harassed by some kids across the street. Get out there and take care of those boys and bring her in immediately. So I jumped out of my chair and I ran over there and I pulled this kid away from her and I pushed him to the ground. I grabbed the other kid and threw him to the ground. I gave him a kick, kicked him a couple times, took Tony by the hand and I walked her back in the house and continued on with whatever I was doing. And that's what that reminded me of. I felt like just getting out of that chair and throttling these kids and these people like my sister's a sideshow freak. So anyway, I got back to the booth and and, um, Tony finished her meal and we left. And so I was getting on at a pretty good pace. It wasn't going to be too late to pick up my date and head to the city for this party. Until we got to the grounds of the hospital. And once Tony realized where we were, she got really anxious and upset, and she started going, no, no, no. And she's, I look over, and she's got a grip on the handle of the car door, and she's holding on to the seat. And, uh, and I said, what's the matter? She goes, go with you. Go with you, my brother. I said, you can't go with me. I said, are you kidding? No, you can't go. No, go with you, my brother. And it was clear to me she did not want to go back to the hospital. She just kept repeating the same thing, and I kept trying to be rational. I kept saying, no, you can't go with me. I have some place to go. I have no place to put you. This is where you live. This is your home. This is your home, and you're going home whether you like it or not. I've got some place I've got to go. 
And so when we got there, you know, I had to get out of the car and I had to go to the other side, open the door and try to coax her out. She just wasn't going to budge. So I found myself with a decision. Either I got to take her by the arm and yank her right out of the car and drag her up the stairs or I have to reach in and pick her up bodily and carry her up the stairs. But a third idea got to me and I said, Tony, and I got down close to her and she's sitting there in the car looking at me. Very upset, and I said, "Tony, you come inside, and I will come back, and I'll visit you. I'll come back and see you again." And she's crying, and so I'm trying to appeal to her and say, "You know, come on, come on, I'll come back. I'll, I'll, come on, I'll come back." And so she started to kind of get out of the car, and I had her by the hand, and I'm reminding her that I'm her brother and I'm family, and I'll come back and I'll see her. Well, the nurses came out. Uh, well, as soon as the nurses came out, she just went crazy. So they're pulling her. Not, I'm pulling her. They're holding her by the arms, trying to move her to the steps and into the ward. Tony's crying. She's trying to pull away, go with me. And uh, we get up the stairs and we get in there. And the nurses manage to get her grip off of me and usher her down the hallway. And. I immediately turned around and left, and I went out and I got in my car. I I, I had to I had to get my composure. I mean, I just couldn't I couldn't understand what was going on. I didn't know what had just happened, but I did know that the scene with the nurses was something I remembered that came back to me sitting there in the car was when we dropped her off. She was five, and we drove all the way out to the desert to Porterville, and um, there was just my. Baby brothers were infants, and my mom and my dad and me in the station wagon, and we spent this night in this motel. And, and my mother just kept crying. She was sitting in front of the dresser, combing Tony's hair and putting ribbons and bows in it. And I'm standing in the doorway of the motel. I was over in the pool, and my mother was in there, you know, crying, and Tony was smiling and. And then the next thing I know, we're in the car and we drive onto another campus of enormous grounds and long sidewalks and white-coated people walking around and multiple buildings and it looked like a life from right off the cover of a brochure. I mean, you would have thought you were looking at yeah <laughs> some picturesque bucolic pastoral place where everybody's dying to go. And so we get there and we pull up outside this building. And my mother gets out and she's walking toward the sidewalk and the nurses come out. And then they're talking and they're talking back and forth. And then the moment came when the nurses came and took Tony's hands from my mom and turned to start walking her inside. And Tony rightfully sensed something bad was going to happen. And so she starts pulling and crying. And my mother, unfortunately, had the terrible task of turning her back on her and walking back to the car to get out of there because nothing nothing attractive nothing purposeful nothing happy was going to come out of the scene i was in the back of the wagon and i'm looking out the back window as if i got a view i'm looking at a movie and i see them taking tony back into back and they open up this door this building and she disappeared inside as as we drove off and that's what it just happened and so i sat there and I got the car started finally I lit a cigarette and I I headed off to the city 
And I thought about my promise to come back and see her. I'd be back in Mountain View uh, when I got discharged. I was going to college. I had seven months left to go. So I figured, well, I don't have to worry about this now, but I'll deal with it later. And somehow or another, the thing about the promise kept nagging at me because I knew that I made this promise to her and that if I didn't come back to see her, there would be no one going in my place. As I drove to the city, little did I realize at all that this encounter would alter in an unanticipated and unplanned fashion the direction of my life for the next 47 years until she died. And um, when I got out, after seven months, I did go see her. And I went to see her every Saturday. And our relationship grew from that. And that's Bob McClellan and the McClellan Files. Send your stories to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org, the voice of the American people. Well, we don't need screenwriters here, folks. Your stories are better. Bob McClellan's story, his sister's story, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, although you may not know what auto-tuning is, there's no doubt that you've heard it. In fact, you just did, with our bumper song from the Black Eyed Peas, Boom Boom Pow. Auto-tune is an audio processor that was designed in 1997 to disguise or perfectly tune vocals or instruments that were off-pitch. Is this new music technology a good or a bad thing? And is it really new? Here's Greg Hengler with the story. Autotune has become the Botox of pop music. But like the commonly used neurotoxin, could autotuning be beneficial? Let's take a closer look. Tonight we present a new miracle of electricity, the Sonovox. Harry Babbitt, using special Sonovox units, gives diction to the tones of the instruments as they play. Harry forms the words, but the instruments sing them. Sing it, saxes! Here's music writer Dave Tompkins. Like we always have this attraction from, from an early age at altering our voices. I think that happens with you know, hooking up to the uh, clown balloon dispenser at a birthday party. And, and here's a way to um, explore different characters. And what's more human than wanting to be something else? Here's musician Ben Harper. More bounce to the ounce. I mean, when that dropped, driving down Crenshaw Boulevard in L.A. playing Roger or Zap, you're sure to get a girl's attention. Marvin Gaye or Roger Troutman? Can't miss. Roger Troutman and Zap, to get that sound, you had to take a tube, 
hook it up to a, an electrical charge and it would send an electrical current down your throat that would then go through a box and go through whatever instrument you were playing. Your voice through the electrical charge and current that was going into your throat was coloring whatever instrument you were playing. After an hour of recording with that thing, it hurt. So now they have what's called auto-tune and it's just the processed version of that sound, which sounds exactly like it and is equally as cool. The television show South Park has had some fun with the auto-tune debate. Here's a scene where Stan has discovered some troubling news about his father. Uh, hey, Dad. I need to talk to you. The chick that wrote the theme song to the new Hunger Games movie is you? Yeah. Wait, wait Lord sounds like a girl. Auto-tune. You want to see how I do it? I use this program to import the recordings I make on my phone. Sparkling thoughts, give me the hope to go on. Dad, Lord's music is actually really good. Thanks, but it gets even better when I add the drum loops. Yeah, yeah, feeling good on a Wednesday. Then with the computer, I can actually quantize Sparkling, everything. Feeling good, feeling back good. Backup instruments. Thoughts, and yeah, then finally, yeah, I use the yeah, auto-tune. Yeah. Sparkling thoughts, feeling good on a Wednesday. Stan. Here's Hall of Fame singer songwriter and record producer Linda Perry. Would you auto tune Patti Smith? No. Carol King? No. Janis Joplin? Oh my God. She, if they put auto tune on Janis Joplin, she would sound like that belief. And you know that's where that came from. That sound came from, and I love Cher, but they must have accidentally left it on while she was singing. I know this is what happened. And then it went, and they were like, what is that? That's cool. Here's culture writer Oliver Wang. What happens a generation or half a generation later is that R&B artists and hip-hop artists they discover they actually really like the sound of auto-tune. They like the sound of this kind of robotic otherworldliness, something that sounds completely unnatural. One of the first people to do it in a big way that surprised a lot of people was actually Kanye West. I'm not loving you way I wanted to. Here's musician Bonnie Ray. There's something great about not fixing stuff. You know, I leave funky notes in all the time and slide notes that aren't quite up to it, and I'll, I'll, I'll tune it back up, and it just loses a lot of what the edge to it. Here again is Ben Harper. Now that auto-tune has become a sound, if you want that as part of your sound, by all means, it's a sound, and it works. So if you want that as your sound, go. But if you want your voice as your sound, no effects. Start working on scales. Here again is Linda Perry. There's not a lot of Christina's. That woman can sing. And she can change her voice and do so many wonderful things with it. Her problem is her perfectionism. That's where she gets into trouble, when she tries to perfect the vocal. 
troubled waters there. But when Christina just sings. As soon as she said, don't look at me, I heard it. The vulnerability in her voice, the insecurity that, oh, she really doesn't think she's all that. Every day is so wonderful and suddenly. It's letting go of ego and being open to failing. Now and then I get insecure. The beautiful thing about that version is when Christina sang it it was just it it was emotional that was the take that I knew right that that was the master take I added the drums and everything after the fact and Christina kept on coming to me I gotta re-sing that you know when can I re-sing that I'm like re-sing it are you crazy this is Magical, like people would die for this emotion. So don't you bring me down So she kept on saying, but wait a minute, it's not, that was my first take. I'm like, I know. She's like, but I can do better. I go, I know you can. That's why you're not going to re-sing it. It's like seven months of this. Like the album is, you know, done. It's being mastered and she's still going at it. So we go in the studio, put it all up, and she starts singing. And I just literally, just one time, she's, I mean, we're like maybe a minute into the song, if even that. I just stopped and I'm like, we're done. And she's like, what do you mean we're done? I'm like, I can hear already you're over singing, you're over perfecting, and you're ruining this song. I'm like, oh, what does she mean? God, what am I doing? What am I doing wrong? I don't understand this form of perfection. And then I finally realized there is no perfection. It's about finding the beauty in the cracks and the holes and the imperfections that's so perfect and beautiful. It's actually about people allowing themselves to be vulnerable and insecure and not always feeling like they're going to get everything right. Because that's what the true beauty of life is. It's about not really getting it right. It's just getting it right in the moment of who you are right now. Certainly while all music can be a mathematical equation to varying degrees, soul isn't, soulfulness isn't. There's such a huge, great soulful place for technology and music, there is. But there is a place where you just go over the edge and lose the, uh, the center of the circle. Every generation of people who listen and write and, and think about music always fear that technology is going to create this homogenous sameness and that everything's going to sound the same. And you can find those complaints going back to the 1920s and 30s. You know, here we are almost 100 years later, and if you look back on the history of it, you would never say, oh yeah, music and all of these different generations and eras all sounded the same. We can always find difference. We can always find the things that stand out to us as being unique. The ones that we remember are the ones that did it really well and, and were different and innovative enough to stand the test of time. It's not the technology that makes great music, it's what's in your heart. We don't really judge a vocal on an intellectual level. 
what we respond to is some feeling that they're honest performances. And when we start to feel like this singer is carrying some truth to us, we make the deeper investment. This is not just the singer-songwriters. It's not just that confessional mode. It's James Brown. It could be chic. But we know when it's, you know, this is where we start to run out of words and we turn to authentic. For our American Stories, I'm Greg Hengler. Great job, as always, Greg. And, well, you haven't heard that one before because I hadn't. Auto-tune versus imperfection. The story of music, in a way, and so much more in technology. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. OurAmericanNetwork.org.